Well, welcome everybody to episode one of Think Which Service podcast, which, let me remind you, encourages people to think before acting when deciding which NHS service is most suitable for their healthcare needs. So a really important campaign, which has already been successful, and this is the latest in the series, brought to you by Shropshire, Telford and Rekin NHS. I'm Dr Hilary Jones. We're focusing today on women's health and in particular, why women's health should be an important specialism in its own right, you know, what that really means. We're also talking about what practical steps women can take to ensure their own personal health and well-being. We're going to be talking about the menopause and the perimenopause, what the symptoms are, how it can best be managed, and which services are available to support um, women uh, with these issues. These are very important subjects. I wrote a book on the menopause probably 15 years ago now, and it's incredible that we're still helping women to access services, to encourage them to come forward uh, and to give them the help that they need when we know that they're so often brushed off. We've got about 30, 35 minutes um, to speak to two very knowledgeable, experienced guests, which are going to introduce themselves in a moment. But in the last few days, Vicky Patterson from Geordie Shaw and Naga Manchetti from BBC News have been talking to the government about the issues that they faced over the years how they felt um, disempowered, how they felt ashamed um, and were told to just suck it up and get on with their symptoms, um, which should certainly not be the case. And this was for the Women and Health Equalities Commission. So without further ado, I'm going to ask my two guests, Melanie and Joanne, to introduce themselves. And can I start with you, Joanne? Hello. Thank you very much. So I'm Dr. Joe Ritchie. I'm a consultant obstetrician and gynaecologist. I'm a British Menopause Society menopause specialist and sort of the whole spectrum. I also do paediatric gynaecology as well. So looking after women really from childhood into menopause and beyond. Thank you very much. And Melanie. Hi, my name is Melanie Thompson. I'm a GP, uh, qualified as a doctor about over 25 years ago. Started my career in women's health um, before I specialised as a general practitioner um, I've been working in sort of women's health as a special interest ever since I qualified, really. And obviously, as a GP, we tend to look after, well, cradle to grave, I suppose, is the, is the term we use. So sort of deal with a, a lots and lots of women um, and their, you know, ailments or complaints, as whichever, you, whichever way you want to put it, sort of on a daily basis. So lots and lots of work going on there. Absolutely. Well, you talk about cradle to the grave. The other phrase is womb to the tomb, which is very uh, important, uh, appropriate for today's episode. Joe, can I start with you? We talk about women's health as a specialism in its own right. How does it differ, do you think, from from men's health? How should it be separated and, and how can we do that? Well, I suppose as a gynaecologist, I'm very biased towards women's health um, because that's what I'm doing really is women's health. And I think the main difference is just that there's always been a lot of stigma, I think, around some of the women's health conditions. They haven't been talked about. It's all been done in whispers. And I think really it's bringing that awareness, reducing that stigma. So women feel confident talking about problems, talking about periods. is not something to shy away from. And I think so many women's health problems, if we are talking about, we can find the right care for them and improve women's um, quality of life as well. So as I said, I'm very biased because I only do women's health, but I think it really should be at the forefront of what we're looking at. And quite often, um, even from you know starting at medications and research, it's always focused on men. And we do need to make sure that we're including women in everything. And we've got that importance right up there. 
and also that women are aware of what is out there for them as well and we can get that help that women need. It's very important what you're saying um, about accessing the right kinds of health because even if women know the signs and symptoms and, the, and they go to the doctors, sometimes they are fobbed off. And it's, I think it's one of the things we should discuss today is what happens if they feel that they're getting fobbed off and told to just get on with it, because that's, that's something that should never happen um, in, in today's day and age. Talking of signs and symptoms, um, Melanie, can I come to you? There's been so much in the news recently about the menopause, and as many people are saying it's over-medicalised, as, as under-treated. What's your take on this? I think looking back, I, I think around the 19, no, 1700s, I think it was, women's problems such as menopause were defined as disease. And it's, it's crazy to think of think that, you know, back in the day, that is how they saw women who went through symptoms such as menopause. In answer to your question, what, how do I feel about the way this, the, the situation is now? I think it's changed massively, but there's so much more that we could be doing. You know, women do differ from men in so many ways, physiologically, psychologically, physically, obviously. And it's recognising those differences when you go to seek health professional support or advice. It's important that both parties do recognise that, that we, you know, we're different creatures. Absolutely. And, and of course, back in the 1700s, um, many women didn't live very much beyond the age of the menopause. So Absolutely. they didn't have half their lives ahead of them, which is so important to, to make them feel healthy and uh, and um, and full of well-being. Um it's it's true, isn't it, that women tend to put their family's health before their own, um, so they might neglect uh, how they're feeling, um, and you know attend to the children or or their partner. Um, how can families best support women when they're going through something like the menopause, and especially if they're going through a severe one? From my perspective as a GP, we often see um, women coming in with somebody else, so whether it's children or whether it's partners. And I think getting a message out there that, you know, menopause is, if we're talking about menopause, is something that all women will go through, most likely, and understanding what it actually means, how they can present, how it affects them from an emotional perspective, from a physical perspective, what sort of adaptations or changes we may need to make as families and children and partners to those women is key. And I think the real issue is having that knowledge and and having that out there so that partners so that children can access that information if they don't know or mom struggling with such and such what can I do to help is this okay and not sort of just leaving it to one side saying well you know she can sort it out actually having that support amongst us as families I think is key so it's it's all about communication really making sure that people know where to ask for help where to access information. Do, do you think um, people know enough about the perimenopause um, as well as the menopause? I mean, th- th- there is this idea that it starts at 50 and that's it, that it's a sudden thing. But of course, symptoms can begin a lot earlier than that, can't they? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you're just spot on. I, I don't think people understand that perimenopause can start at different ages for starters um but also understanding what those symptoms are for example you know hot flushes can last for seven and a half years either side and that's not something people understand either that you know we often see people in general practice coming in saying i've I've, I've turned 51 i think i've got the menopause 
and just that statement alone, you know, sort of there's so much you can unpack there. How long have you had symptoms for? What sort of symptoms are you having? It's all about communication for me. I want to get onto the subject of, of HRT. Not a day goes by at the moment without an article in, in the papers or something on television talking about HRT. And it seems to be so polarised. You know, some people are saying it's the, the best thing since sliced bread. Other people saying, oh, be careful. It's, uh, it comes with, um, uh, with warnings um, and uh, it's not for everybody. Um, some people seem to access it when it's appropriate. Others can't. What's your take on it? What are the pros and cons? And, and what do you think people, women should most know about HRT and its use? I think that's a really good question. I think it's so difficult for women now to know what's right and what's wrong mm. because it's so easy to access information. And how do you know if you're accessing the right information or not? Historically, there's been a lot of myth and misconceptions around HRT, and a lot of that was due to some original research um, that unfortunately highlighted too much some of the risks and some of the complications. So, for example, with the Women's Health Concern research that came out and looked at the risk of breast cancer, suddenly people were being taken off their HRT and doctors were told not to prescribe it. And also doctors weren't being taught about it as well. So there's a huge lack of knowledge from around the, sort of the 90s and the early um, sort of 20s when HRT was thought of as this bad medication. So a lot of what we need to do now really is dispelling those myths and those misconceptions and to improve knowledge um, around HRT. So, for example, if we just look at um, the breast cancer risk, for example, um, of course, there's always going to be that small risk of breast cancer with HRT, but it's women being aware of all the other things that can cause breast cancer. So if you can imagine, say, a thousand women in a room who are menopausal age, so in their 50s, then out of those thousand women, you'd get 23 women who would develop breast cancer normally as their sort of their baseline risk, their population risk. Now, if we put all of those thousand women onto HRT, you'd get an additional four women who would develop breast cancer who wouldn't have ordinarily have developed breast cancer if they weren't on HRT. So, of course, there's those four women um, but that's quite a, you know, a relatively small risk out of the 1,000 women. If you compare that to making all of those women have a BMI above 30, you've got an additional 24 cases of breast cancer. So I think just allowing women to know that there are other things in their lifestyle that can make far more of an impact. So losing weight, being generally healthy, not smoking, for example, is far more important with their breast cancer risk. And of course, that's different if a woman's had breast cancer. And I think that's the other really important thing is knowing that women are all individuals and will have different medical problems. So we can't treat everyone the same. They really do need an individualised approach as to what their background is, what their medical history is. But for the majority of women, um, the benefits are definitely going to outweigh the risks. And we need to get that that message out there to women that for most women it's going to be a good idea but again lifestyle really really important lots of things that women can do themselves looking at their lifestyle that can have a huge impact on their symptoms as well that's such an important point and i believe it's the case that that women are more likely to be screened um and even if they're one of the very unlucky ones to uh, develop breast cancer that they're, they're more likely to have it picked up sooner um as opposed to women who aren't on hrt is that right probably as long as women are breast aware um it, they won't necessarily have more screening but especially if we've counseled them to be aware of of what to look out for they're just going to be more health conscious to be looking out for those signs and therefore hopefully get picked up earlier yes Melanie, let's come back.
come back to you. There's various um, forms of screening available to, to women, but but at the same time, there are still pervading fears and anxieties about what screening involves, whether people want to know if there might be something that's uh, that, that's discovered. Um, talk us through the, the screenings uh, that are available and, and why it's so important that women do come forward for screening if they're offered one. There are different methods of, of screening, um, sort of illness and disease, I suppose, is the best way of of looking at it we know currently certainly by figures that are done all over the world um like in the us that heart disease is the number one killer uh, for women in the world so actually focusing on things that we know are really important is is one of the keys in screening so blood pressure checks and having sort of regular blood tests and cholesterol checks diabetic checks are very simple screening tests that we can be that can be done in general practice. But there's also other types of screening. So skin checks. If if women on the whole are aware of checking their skin regularly, looking for anything that doesn't seem normal or seem you know seems unusual for them, to going and getting a healthcare professional to have a look at it is a type of screening. You know, there's nothing there's nothing painful with that. Often the word screening at- attaches some negative connotations so people think that it's going to hurt every type of screening is going to hurt it isn't so if you use skin checks as an example of screening for skin cancer for example just checking your skin looking for moles looking for anything that's unusual then going to see your gp or your nurse about it is a type of screening we've i've already talked about sort of blood pressure checks going to see the healthcare professional if your blood pressure is slightly high and you check it yourself or if you're not sure going to get regular checks done Obviously, cervical cancer is, is something that is really key. And it's cervical cancer is, we know, easily preventable with things like smear tests. So smear tests are offered in the UK to women over the age of 25. Making sure that you're, you're up to date with those if you're invited is absolutely key. We do have vaccines available for those under the age of 26. It doesn't rule out all of the different types of strain that we're looking for when we're talking about screening so it is important that smear smears are done when you're invited you mentioned sort of breast screening um breast screening and checking your breast yourself most women have been taught sort of from a very early age how to check their breasts and if they're not sure they they can easily go and see a health care professional to to run through how to check your breasts and we always advise checking your breasts on a monthly basis and after the after certain ages you will be invited as a woman for breast screening and breast screening is a mammogram which is like a low dose type of x-ray and that sort of looks into the breast in a little bit more detail and is really very good at picking up um, unusual sort of changes in the breast that you may not even be able to feel yourself so as we go through different age groups of life there are different screenings available um, and I mentioned the ones that we use the most in general practice, for example, such as breast checks and smears and blood pressure checks and blood tests for things like cholesterol and diabetes. It's all they are all the types of screening that that we talk about. Thank you. And, and Joe, you were talking with regard to HRT about uh, uh, putting that in perspective uh, when it comes to breast cancer and uh, the, the importance of a healthy lifestyle. I mean, lifestyle is is so important. On Lorraine Kelly's show, we were talking about uh, the tragedy of of one of our um, dear producers who who lost her life at the age of thirty three after um, just delivering her first baby boy. Her loss from um, breast cancer. 
lifestyle is so important for women of all ages. What are the most important things women can do to help themselves to avoid these kind of risks? Obviously, unfortunately, we, we can't avoid um, all cases. But yes, you're right. There are particular lifestyle changes that we can do to reduce our risk, to hopefully have the, the sort of least risk of getting breast cancer. And those are all general um, healthy lifestyle things. So looking at diets, looking at exercise, trying, if possible, to keep within a normal BMI. And of course, that gets harder because as you go through the menopause, you are more likely um, to notice changes in terms of putting on weight. And so the things that you used to be able to eat in your 30s and your 40s and kept a stable weight, unfortunately, if you keep to the same diet, is likely you'll put on weight. So it's thinking about how can you make small changes to your diet. So um, there's lots of going to the gut microbiome, for example. So if people are interested in that, there's lots of um, information you can find out. But really, it's about variety. So having a good variety of different types of food, lots of different types of vegetables, um, different herbs, different nuts, for example, um, trying to reduce the amount of ultra processed food which again is really difficult because our culture is set up everything's very easy to access that's ultra processed but looking at what you are eating and are there any ultra processed foods that you can change and I think again it's difficult because people were always told to have a low fat diet but typically all those low fat yogurts um, and sort of um, products that don't have sugar in just have alternative forms of sugar and again it's it's sometimes the things that are designed and look like they're healthy are actually marketed but aren't necessarily healthier. So definitely looking at diet. Exercise is so important. So exercise itself for women who have had breast cancer is shown to reduce the risk of recurrence. So exercise is really crucial. One, to reduce the risk of breast cancer, but also people feel better when they do exercise. So we all know if we do go out and we do go on that run, we do feel better. And it may just be baby steps. So if you're not someone that's been doing lots of exercise, it's ways of slowly introducing some exercise. So even if that's just going for a walk in the morning and then gradually picking up the pace. So the whole um, couch to 5K, for example, park run, really, really um, easily accessible, going um, to your local park run. And you just feel better when you're mixing with people going for a run together everyone it's a lovely environment to be in so diet exercise ideally um not smoking reducing your alcohol intake because again unfortunately um you know women who are menopausal will have noticed that if they drink unfortunately makes their hot flushes worse as well so it's all those simple things that sound easy but of course they're not easy um it does require a lot of motivation but simple baby steps slowly building up can make a huge difference in how people feel about themselves but also reducing that risk of breast cancer as well Thank you. And and I'm going to ask you both now, starting with you, Mel. Three of us are passionate about looking after women and their health, making sure that we make ourselves available, giving them the time to explain about these health issues and giving them the opportunity to, to talk and express their fears and anxieties. But unfortunately, not everybody might be as as accessible um, and available as, as we are. Where can women turn if they think they're getting fobbed off, if they, if they think they deserve a better hearing, if you like, and, and they're not getting it from the immediate source, which might be a GP, might be somebody else. But what can they do if they feel that they, they really need more help? Start with you, Mel. I mean, there's a lot of resources online that are available for women that give them some support as well if they want some extra, extra advice. 
So, I mean, obviously, as a GP, I would always say, yes, go and see a GP. And if you can't get into see your GP or your practice nurse, you know, speaking to other health professionals is always going to be helpful. It's not always easy for them to do that. And I appreciate that completely. We do have things like psychological therapies, which are available online. So talking therapies, mindfulness, things like breathing exercises, counselling, CBT, they're all sort of psychological therapies that can help as well. And it's sort of not medicalizing um, the issues that you may have, but actually more taking support for you, you know, taking support, looking out there, having a chat with different people. There are lots of support groups as well in our local community. So lots of women's health support groups that are in community centres, for example, and, and they're all available online as well. And often, as Joe, my colleague, said, you know, talking to other people, going out when you're exercising, when you're running and having chat with other women about symptoms and about how you're, the things that you're experiencing, let's say, can be really helpful on its own. And we know that we, we see women that have spoken to other women that have said, well, my friend said when she spoke to her GP, she was offered such and such. It's really helpful and it's really valuable for us as, as clinicians as well to know what, what other people are, are accessing. So we sort of just having confidence to go and speak to other people about it. And Joe, as a gynaecologist, it, it must be the case that you're sometimes seeing women for the first time who've complained of, of symptoms for years, uh, particularly if, it, if it's something like endometriosis or as uh, Lega Manchetti had um, um, a, a, uter- a chronic uterine condition. Um, uh, you know, it, it's, it is the case that women are still waiting too long to be diagnosed sometimes. Yes, you're exactly right there, unfortunately. Um I might be the first person that they've sort of felt has listened to them. And that's not necessarily anyone's fault. It's that awareness and the education of knowing about particular conditions. And I think hopefully things like endometriosis and adenomyosis are sort of more known about now. And therefore women are sort of being diagnosed earlier. With regards to endometriosis, um, endometriosis.org.uk is a very good, useful resource. Um, So on there, there's information that women can read about. There's support groups as well. So for endometriosis, lots of areas will have a support group where women do meet up face-to-face. And they have lots of webinars as well. So they get experts to come do the webinars. So lots of useful information. And again, big problem, waiting lists in the hospitals. I know, unfortunately, all my clinics have got incredibly long waiting lists. And it can be so incredible incredibly frustrating for women having to wait so long to be seen um so again from menopause there's the women's health concern website which is another really good resource that women can find information on and again i think women now generally are very knowledgeable about their um, conditions they are becoming the experts in their conditions and so it can be quite frustrating for them if they they know what they want to do next but they can't find that next step Um, and again hopefully by finding those other support networks they can find ways to get in but yes unfortunately the waiting lists at the moment are are quite long and it can be very frustrating waiting to finally get to see a specialist and to get the treatment that they need being someone who who works on on tv um, another good way of empowering uh, women and, and giving them information is to in, in, encourage storylines in, in soaps because you know we see these characters um, experience the symptoms and the male audience as well can identify um, with those issues and it encourages people to, to go and see the doctor. I know that there's always an uptick in appointments being made after these issues are, are flagged on, on television so that's, that's something that, that TV can certainly do well. 
Uh, and as we're approaching, um, you know, the uh, the end of the podcast in the last few minutes, I just wanted to broach the subject. I think it's a very important one about mental health. Now, there's no question that that women are anxious not just about their their themselves but their families. You know, we're, we're facing lots of challenges in the world today. People are under all sorts of strain and worries that things beyond their control. Are you very aware in your patients that um, mental strain and stress is is at the fore at the moment? Mel, can I come back to you? Oh, absolutely. Certainly in general practice, we see huge amounts of anxiety, depression, generally just stress. And it's, I think the key for us is to make sure we deal with every person as an individual and what symptoms they are bringing to us. It's very easy and tempting to pigeonhole a symptom as, oh, well, it's menopause, or it must be menopause, or it must be anxiety. Actually, the two can coexist. That Who knows which one has caused which? It's about being open-minded and sitting in front of someone who is struggling with their mental health and actually treating them as an individual and the symptoms and looking at that individual and what they're presenting with, rather than pigeonholing, well, she's just menopausal, which is sadly what we see a lot of. And and I hear so many complaints in that way that I went to speak to my GP or my general practice nurse, and they just said it was menopause. Well, actually, yes, it might be, but we need to make sure that we're not missing anything else and that there are actual issues that we need to sit down and focus on and help symptom control as well as looking at the underlying causes and also being aware of you know what therapies are out there as I sort of mentioned before you know talking therapies and mindfulness and breathing can help with low levels of anxiety but recognizing that there may be a place for more intensive treatments such as medical treatments or or more specific mental health support. Yeah, absolutely. And Joe, I'm sure that by the time patients have come to you for the first time in that outpatients clinic, their gynecological issues are, are very inextricably linked with psychological issues as well. Yes, definitely. And I completely echo what Mel was saying in terms of we need to look at the individual patient in front of us. We can't try and double guess sort of what's going on. Um, I see a huge variety. What I find really quite sad is in my paediatric clinic, the huge amount of teenagers that I see with depression, which sometimes can be interlinked with having a horrendous time with periods or eating disorders, for example. Um, but yeah, very, very high rates that I see in my in my teenage group. And then again, menopausal women that um, you know, are desperate to be seen in clinic because they're having such huge impacts on their quality of life. So women who may not have been able to have HRT because of breast cancer, for example, that have been struggling on for months and months. Um, and women, again, who just have having horrendous time with periods um, that, you know, they're not able to go to work because of how heavy their periods are and the impact that then has on their quality of life and, of course, on their relationships as well. So, gynecology quite often is that that topic that's whispered about but can have huge big implications on women and if they're not don't feel confident talking to their friends that's one of the normal outlets that women have to feel better that they don't have so it is bringing that awareness there that people are happy talking about periods happy talking about their gynecological issues um and i'll i'll just talk about one um case so i do quite a lot of teaching about menopause and i particularly teach nurses because I think nurses are a really important part of the process in terms of educating women about menopause symptoms. And one nurse at the end of one of my teaching sessions said to me the other day that she'd recently seen a woman who'd had a hysterectomy in her 40s and no one told her about the menopause. She didn't know what to expect. 
and she ended up having severe mental health issues as she went through the menopause. Um, she ended up having a divorce. She had to lose her house. She lost her job. And it's only as she's been watching programs recently about the menopause that she suddenly realised that's what happened to me. I had my ovaries removed when I was in my 40s, in my early 40s. I was going through the menopause. That's why I had these mental health problems. No one told me about it. And if someone had just educated me about what to expect and talked about HRT, then she may not have had all the drastic things that happened to her in her life. So I think that just really... Um, brings home how important it is that people are talking about this and about how it can have a huge big impact on women's quality of life. Thank you and, and last question to both of you before we, we wrap up and that is are men getting better at supporting their female partners? Do they come into the surgery? Do they come into the clinic? Uh, are, do they, are they better at understanding what's going on? Uh, Joe, to you first. I've, I've definitely noticed an increase in men coming with women um, to the clinic which I think has its, its benefits and its disadvantages. Um, I think sometimes you can really see that their partners are there to support them and I think sometimes they, some women don't feel they can talk maybe as, as freely sometimes depending if the husband's there but definitely I think it's crucial we get men involved and I've definitely seen more men wanting to know about the menopause and asking can we do some teaching for men because men want to know what's happening they want to be fully informed they want to be able to support their wives whereas in the past they wouldn't have wanted to know about it. So I think there's definitely a turn in men being interested and really wanting to be able to support their wives and their, their partners. I would absolutely agree with Joe on that. So over the over the decades I've been working, there's been a massive improvement in the way that men are supporting their partners during this time. You can see the effects not only on, on, the, on the woman, but on the man when you speak to both of them about symptoms and, and normalising this situation so use menopause as a, a stage of life in the same way that we you know women go through puberty they go through menstruation they go through pregnancy they go through menopause they go through postmenopause it's a stage of their partner's life or their mom's life or you know whoever is, has joined in and actually recognizing that, that that partner is there and speaking to both of them makes the woman feel really supported as well so, the, you know, the, the partner is feeling like he's being included in these conversations, but the woman is also feeling that she's being accepted for who she is and that there isn't something wrong with her. But actually, this is normal. And how can we best support her through the symptoms that she may be experiencing? Because as Joe said, if that communication and that support isn't there at the beginning, that's unfortunately when things can't have a potential to go wrong later well there we are this this uh, episode of the podcast has uh, enlightened men as well as women uh, i i hope and i want to thank you both for your time uh, your experience and your knowledge so people will be able to access this podcast and learn a lot joe thank you for pausing from your surgery and, your, and uh, melanie thanks for pausing from your gp practice which i'm sure is very busy as well and uh, look forward to speaking to you again in the future Thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Well, my thanks very much to uh, Melanie Thompson and Joanne Ritchie, who shared their brilliant expertise, experience and knowledge with us today. And if anybody wants more information, then please go to thinkwhichservice.co.uk. 